Good morning. Last year, as part of our process for creating this new vision statement we are living into, we held 22 listening sessions with all of you. And in those sessions, you let us know why you have come to be a part of this particular congregation and what you hope this family of faith could offer you and your families and your community. And we asked you how this church could address an area of need in our society. And you said over and over again that we have to look at poverty, poverty in our neighborhoods and in our city. And then when we asked you how you wanted to grow as a follower of Christ, we heard pretty much a healthy spread of answers, including that you want to worship and pray and study and serve together. Basically, you are a church. And so this Seeking the Welfare of the City sermon series was created with all of that in mind. And I want to recognize that this sermon series is the beginning of a deeper conversation and exploration around how we can faithfully live into our call to be a church for this city and for this world. So let us listen now with open hearts to these guiding words from the prophet Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what you produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. So I've recently noticed that whenever my husband, Alex, and I travel, we have different approaches when it comes to unpacking. I basically live out of the suitcase and Alex, on the other hand, actually puts his shirts and his socks in drawers, and he hangs his suit and his pants in the closet. I will happily spread my things on top of the dresser, but not put it inside of the dresser. But the funny thing is that when it comes to our house, I put my clothes away, and he leaves piles <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> And a part, or in addition to how we set aside our clothes, Alex and I have also realized that we still don't feel quite settled in our house. Even though we've been there for almost two years now, we haven't been able to turn this house 
into our home. You know what I mean? Like our furniture doesn't match the rooms we now have. And there are repairs and changes we keep meaning to make but never get around to doing. And we don't have a single family photo hanging on our walls. And in our defense, you know, our schedules are pretty busy. And we are at the mercy of a two-year-old <laughs> who has the emotional range of a two-year-old. <laughs> and still, we have this longing to be able to walk into our home and to feel comfortable and to feel at peace and rooted in this place where we have now wanted to settle. And so when we first moved in together, we talked a lot about what we wanted in a home. And what we've learned is that your home has the capacity to reflect your values and has the capacity to help us live out those values. And one of those is hospitality. We want a home where we can invite our friends and neighbors over, where it is inviting and welcoming, where everybody can come and help us join in our favorite activity, which is eating. <laughs> and besides our relatives, our family, we haven't had people over to our house in quite some time. When we first moved in, a couple weeks in, we did have a small housewarming party slash birthday party for my husband. And at the time, it was understandable that we would have boxes here and there, mismatched furniture and bare walls. But now, two years later, it's a little embarrassing. <laughs> and I wonder, I wonder at what point did the Israelites feel this way about their lives in Babylon? At what decade into their time in this city did they feel a little annoyed that they were still living out of their suitcases and boxes? I believe there are two main factors that kept them from settling down. They're important ones. One, they were in exile. They were forced out of their homes. They were uprooted from everything that they have known, and they were forced to live in Babylon. They didn't want to be there. And the second is that there were false prophets at the time who were promising them that their return back to Jerusalem would come very soon. Well, the prophet Jeremiah, however, had a different message for them. And so he sent them a letter. He wrote, Dear friends, the God of Israel wants me to tell you that actually God sent you into exile. So settle in. Build houses and plant gardens so you have a place to live and you have things to eat. Find a partner for yourselves and have children and may they have partners. And also look after your new neighbors. I think their reaction to this letter was to fold it right back up and write wrong address, return to sender. <laughs> you see, it's difficult to hear when God's plan is different from our own. Jeremiah is telling them that God's plan is not only different for them, but different for the generations that will come after them. And it's even more difficult to hear God asking you to care for the very people 
who have caused you pain. The Israelites, they're the ones who've lost everything. And now God wants them to care for these foreign people in this foreign land with this pagan culture. In their mind, I can hear them saying, don't you remember, God, that you are our God? And to their hearts, God is saying, yes, I am your God. And I am still with you and will always be with you wherever this life takes you. And I am also the God of the people and the communities of this land that you have not opened yourselves up to yet. You see, when I read the Bible, I encounter stories like this one all the time. Stories that remind me how our lives unfold differently when we trust and we follow God. And there are countless stories about how God longs for communities of people who for whatever reason have been set apart to come back and be restored with one another. I think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. I think of all of Paul's letters where he's defending his ministry for the inclusion of the Gentiles. And I think of all those ragtag group of women and men who Jesus called to follow him. And what we've learned from these stories, what I've learned from these stories, is how critical our restoration to marginalized communities is to the larger salvation story of God. And so why does this all matter to us here at Preston Hollow Presbyterian Church in Dallas, Texas? I think it matters to us because Dallas is one of the leading places in our country for social exile. And when I say social exile, I mean we have yet to come together as a collective city. In 2015, the Pew Research Center ranked the DFW Metroplex number two when it comes to racial and economic segregation. In the entire United States, we are second only to our neighbor, Houston, Texas. What this means is that in our city, there are highly concentrated area of upper income households. And there are highly concentrated areas of lower-income households. And on top of that, the vast majority of those residing in those upper-income households, 95% are white households. Of those middle and mixed-income households, 76% of those are white households. And so what that means for us is that those lower income households are made up of over 80% of non-white households. So when I say social exile, I mean we are geographically isolated from one another based on our racial and economic income level. 
and the majority of those who are low income are African American and Latino communities. And on top of that, Somehow, our children live even more segregated lives because of the schools they attend. According to an analysis by the, of the U.S. Census by the Dallas Independent School District, between the years of 1970 and 2000, that's 30 years, the population of white students disappeared faster than white households from the county of Dallas. So what that means is that more students left the school than families left the county. And the percentage in 1970 of white students was 60%, and 30 years later, it's 17%. In those 30 years, 81 thousand students have been unenrolled from DISD and today the population of white students is 5%. And what recent research is showing us is that all of this social, racial, economic isolation from one another is hurting all of us. We live in a city now that is nationally recognized for extreme disparities. Disparities in education and housing and economic opportunities and health outcomes. And all of these issues are rooted in the ways we live segregated lives from one another. And at the same time, we have charitable foundations, we have new nonprofits, we have churches and individuals who are spending more money and more time providing short-term band-aid fixes for chronic and systemic issues of poverty. I hope you know that I do not mean to share these statistics to make us feel bad or to make us feel ashamed of our choices. I know what it's like to struggle to make choices for the best of our family and the best of our communities. And you know, as a church, we are mandated to provide those short-term fixes. We have to feed the hungry. We have to bring water to those who are thirsty. We have to invite the stranger in, and we have to clothe those who are naked. That is our mandate. And what is God is telling us and inviting us to do through Jeremiah is to open ourselves up to the reality that we can offer compassionate responses to immediate need and we can begin to alter the environment all around us that continue to allow these pervasive manifestations of poverty to remain rooted in our city. We don't have to choose between caring for individuals and caring for this entire city. And if you hear nothing else today, I hope you hear this is that our individual efforts can make a collective impact for good 
all around us. Last year, I attended a conference here in Dallas, and I was introduced to this incredible philosopher and poet named Mark Nepo. Some of you may be familiar with him. In one of his books, he tells this really interesting story. It's a story of two tribes. This is what he writes. <coughs> In the beginning, when the first humans came across each other, I imagine the fearful one said, you're different, go away. And that was the beginning of the go away tribe. The other tribe said, you're different, come teach me. And that was the beginning of the come teach me tribe. While our reasoning has grown more complicated throughout the centuries, Mark writes, our reactions are essentially the same. Go away, come teach me. Since the beginning, the two tribes have had their philosophies. The go away tribe believes human beings by nature are self-serving and untrustworthy in need of control. The go-away tribe believes in stringent laws and constraints, both moral and legal, to ensure that people don't run amok. The come-teach-me tribe believes human beings by nature are kind and trustworthy. The come-teach-me tribe believes in cultivating laws that empower freedom to ensure that people actualize their gifts through relationships. Times of enlightenment throughout our history mark the extreme manifestation of the Come Teach Me tribe, which fosters wonder, learning, compassion, and cooperation. Empowered by trust, the Come Teach Me tribe fills us with curiosity that turns into interindependence and the belief that we need each other, and that the diversity of our gifts makes our lives whole. What Mark believes is that we're born into both of these tribes, and we have the capacity to move from one tribe to the other based on our level of fear. And what he believes is ultimately the powers of this world are always moving us back together again because we are all parts of an individual whole. And our life, our love, our suffering reveals this to us. This wholeness, this wholeness is what Jeremiah is lifting up in his letter. Seek the welfare of the city, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. The word welfare is a translation of the Hebrew word shalom, which means wholeness. Shalom also means prosperity and human flourishing. Family of God, God invites us to discover shalom by participating in this holy, messy, difficult, and intergenerational work of building a community where all God's children have the opportunity to flourish.
So I ask you today, if we're committed to being the church in this world, if we believe that we as Preston Hollow Presbyterian Church have the responsibility to seek the welfare of this city, it's time for us to open ourselves up to the invitations into the neighborhoods, into the communities, into the schools and the lives that we have kept ourselves away from. And when we are invited into these spaces and into these relationships, we do not go as saviors, as fixers. We do not go with all the right answers and all the money to fix the problems. We go on this journey to build genuine community. And that requires our presence. It requires our courage, our trust, our vulnerability, and generous listening. When we go, we go humbly saying, come, teach me. To God be the glory. Amen.